We're going to dive right in. We've kind of turned the corner a little bit on this series of identity crisis, and we're going to take another step in this process as we go through this. We're going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are not what we were. We are something brand new, created in the image of God, and with that comes an expectation, and this is the part we often miss. The expectation is when you're created in the image of God, you become what? A disciple. Becoming a disciple means that you are beginning to reflect the words and the action and the spirit behind both of those that the one who led you there has. So we talk about this, we are a disciple of whom? Christ. That means what he said and what he did should be a reflection in our lives to what we say and what we do. Is that a fair enough way to put it? Kind of a simplified form, but if you think about it, it's important. Now, is that how the church in America acts? It is not. You give your life to Christ, and then from there you begin to interpret the Scriptures and the way that you perform and act and all of that in a way that suits you. It makes you feel good. In fact, it becomes more about you than it does about God. You look at the modern church today in America, you'll begin to notice that there is a trend out there, and it is about finding your purpose, your destiny, discovering yourself, who God has created you to be. I grew up in the church, grew up during a time of revival, nonetheless, which was powerful all in and of itself. But as I was growing up, it was constantly about finding your calling. And you had to discover where God wanted you the rest of your life. And when you hear calling, what do we think of? We think of one of the five-fold ministry groups. That's a calling. We forget the fact that there are some that are to be teachers, some apostles, some pastors, some evangelists, and so on. But not all. And a calling doesn't stop there. But we were to discover our calling. And it was very, very difficult. Because it's like, how do I know what God wants me to do the rest of my life? I mean, here I am, 16 years old. And that was the thing that was drilled. It was drilled in church. It was drilled in our youth ministry. You have to discover. The problem was is nobody had the answer. How do you discover it? How do you know what the Lord has set up for you to do the rest of your life and to serve Him in that manner? And how on earth do you ever differentiate what God has said versus what I just want? Because if we went with the calling that I thought I had when I was very young, you know what that was? It was a paleontologist. If you don't know what that is, that's one who looks at dinosaur bones. I love dinosaurs. They were awesome. I knew all of their names. I could look at one point and I had to tell you exactly what it is, where they found it, who found it, that they were millions of years old and extinct and all that. I knew all of that. Then later as I got a little bit older, I got into music. You know what my calling was then? I'm going to travel the world and be a drummer. As you guys know, all the chicks wanted drummers. Right? That's not true, just so you know. But I mean, that was it. It's like, man, I'm going to do this. But it was during a time of this revival that, you know, the Spirit of God was moving in such a unique way. It had been going on since the very late 80s, really started up in Toronto, had worked its way into the States with uh, uh, Florida, uh, Brownsville, couldn't think of it. Jim got a chance to go down there to that, which was pretty cool. And um, my pastor had gotten a chance to go down there to that. I mean, it was an incredible time. And we would have these services where uh, we would just get together and pray. It was just a handful of us, you know, because... The statistics speaking, okay, this is how it goes. Whatever the amount of people that attend a Sunday morning service, if you have a midweek Bible study, you can factor about 20% of those people are going to show up. 
And if you have a prayer service, it's less than five. Okay, so it kind of shows you priority-wise, this is where we go. But with that is we would have these services where we'd just get together and we'd pray, and then we would open it up. And the Lord was using me in this manner, and I would give, and I would get these words, but I didn't know how to describe it. And I would get these things, and I would just get up, and they said, whatever is in your heart, you just say. And at that point, I'm like, well, how do you know if it's in your heart or in your head? Like, how do you know the difference? I didn't know. And so I would just get up, and I would begin to say these things, and people would come up to me like, man, you're going to be a preacher someday. And I'm like, man, get thee behind me. No. No, I don't want that. I don't want to stand in front. I'm going to play the drums. I like the drums. The drums are awesome. You know, and so as you're going through this, I mean, it literally was tormenting me, trying to figure out what God wanted for me in life. Tormented me. And you know how they would tell you you'd know? This is the statement. This still makes me mad to this day. It upsets me. It said, you just know in your knower. <laughs> Anybody else ever heard that? Am I the only one? Like, for real. What does that even mean? What's my knower? I don't even know what that is. Because according to my school teachers, my knower is broken. <laughs> it wasn't until years later as I, I kind of struggled with this. You know what it dawned on me one day? I was reading scripture. I'm going to Bible school. It was the right thing to do, right? I was going to Bible school. And I'm reading scripture. And it dawned on me. You know what my calling was in life? To serve the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was it. All these years hours of prayer, sometimes fasting, all of this stuff, trying to figure that out. But you know what wasn't brought up? Serving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It wasn't ever brought up. It was implied, but that's what everybody does. That's not a calling. I got news for you folks. That's a calling. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And as I've talked about before, We've also often misinterpreted this passage to mean that we're not thinking immorally, but we are thinking morally. And this has nothing to do with that. I mean, you could say it does have something to do with that, but truthfully speaking, that if you are thinking spiritually, as in that the scriptures are your guide, you're thinking about these things, that you won't think about immoral things. Your mind won't go there. In the moment that it does, you'll take that thought captive and bring it into obedience. It's thinking the way that God thinks. It's filtering everything through what God has, what God has said, what God has laid out. And with that being said, that is a part of why we talk about things that we do not fear. There is nothing that is appropriate to fear as a believer. You should not fear death. You should not fear the economy. You should not fear what's coming around the next corner. You should never fear anything. That doesn't mean there won't be challenges. There's a difference from dealing with challenges and being afraid. When you are fearing, you are not walking in faith. You are now thinking carnally. But when you overcome those challenges, when you are facing that, knowing that God is going to take care of whatever it is in the moment, you're now thinking spiritually. There's a big difference. Being carnally minded will lead to death. Being spiritually minded will lead to life. I was reading a book years ago. It was recommended by a friend of mine, by a guy named George Moeller. Moeller, Mueller. I'm not sure how you say it. It was his autobiography. I know you've read it. Mueller? Mueller. 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 Anybody from the 80s, Mueller, nothing, nobody, thank you, okay. These guys back there like have no idea what we're talking about, but anyway. And um, the reason it was recommended to me is, is this man had, had built his entire ministry around this concept that George had. Now, just so you know, George was not writing a construct of how you do ministry. But what he had done is he had set up these orphanages and uh, 
was taking in kids, and I believe he was from, was he England or where was he from? Okay, doesn't matter. It wasn't here. It was somewhere else. And in this, this thing, as you're reading, it says on this day, on this day, like you're just reading through this stuff. And what it kept talking about was, and the premise behind it is that running an orphanage, especially at that time, you know there wasn't government funding, food stamps didn't exist, none of that kind of stuff existed. And so there are many times that they did not have the bills to pay, the light bill, to take care of these children, to feed them, whatever the case may be. And when that would happen, the way we respond to that today is we make sure people know, would you please pray for me? I can't make rent. Would you please pray for me? I can't put food on the table. Um, if you're a TV preacher, it's like, we're going to be off the air tomorrow if you don't give today. All of that kind of stuff. And George absolutely refused to do that. George took the approach, he's like, nope, we're going to spend some time praying about this. God knows that our needs, he will meet our needs. They'll begin to fast, they'll do whatever was going on in that moment. And without fail, every single time, somebody showed up with either food, with money. There was never time that they lacked. And this man built his entire ministry, this friend of mine, based off of that. He's like, I am never going to go to people and tell them where we are. We are just going to trust God. You know how hard that is to do? Because if I came up to you in this room and I said, guys, we have a need. Without question, those needs have always been met. Now, in this case, I let everybody know what's going on, if it was in the building or something like that, because collectively, that's how we do things. But for him, he's like, I'm not going to go to these people that have supported me and stuff like that and essentially beg for money, because then I'm not trusting God. It was a, a, something we had to teach the church in the Philippines, as an example. Every time that they had a need arise, do you know what they did? They would contact me, they would contact Yoli, something like that. I said, do you realize by doing that, you're not trusting God? And as you guys will hear next week, with everything that they've learned through the last couple of years, even in the midst of COVID and all the lockdown, they had the highest giving year that they've ever had since that church was founded 14 years ago. Thank you, Jesus. But we're thinking spiritually, not carnally. So the moral aspect is part of it, but only one part of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, is, and start down at verse 3, actually, it says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So that tells us this. The enemy is on attack. He is looking for people that he can devour, and we'll read that here in a minute. But how we respond is not carnally. You could make the argument... And I don't get on people about this, but you could make the argument that if I have a need and I am going to you to tell you these needs and how dire it is, then I am acting carnally. Because I don't know about you, but for me, if somebody is hurting and I have the ability to solve that problem by simply writing a check or something like that, I'm going to do it. I think most of us in this room would do the same thing. And what you need to learn is sometimes that's not the best thing you can do for that person. Because sometimes we need to trust the Lord. Not sometimes, all the time. You know, but, but the thing is, is that if I did that, I am acting carnally. You know, this friend of mine that's got his ministry, you guys know him, it's Brian Young. He's built his entire ministry this way. But when he, he came to me with the idea about this creation museum, it was something that the Lord had put on his heart to do. It was going to be around $100,000. Okay, something like that. That's a lot of money. Now, you guys don't know Brian, but Brian is tighter than two coats of paint. That man spends money on nothing. In fact, we were together just recently. He pulled out his credit card, and there was a wear mark on it, which shocked me. That implied that he used it once or twice. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen that before. 
And so anyway, but as he was approaching me, he's like, what do you think about this idea? And I'm like, that's a big undertaking to build this thing out, the logistics behind it. You need a semi to pull the trailer. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of parts to it. He's like, man, then God's put it on my heart. I'm like, did you need to press forward? So what he did is he just sent a letter. said, hey, guys, be praying for us. This is the next step in the ministry. It's all he said. Within six months, a semi was donated and over $100,000 was raised. And he never asked for a dime. And he just said, he's like, when the Lord provides the money, that's when we'll build it out. We won't get in front of him. You know, and it's like, man, that's, that's unheard of today. Because what do we typically do? I need $100,000. I got to have this money. Will you pledge to this? Will you do this and stuff? Again, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I'm not getting on anybody about it. But just think about it. Is that when we look at it, when it, from a monetary standpoint, we think carnally. The idea of giving goes against the carnal nature of man. Tithing does not make sense mathematically. It doesn't make sense carnally. We want to keep that and do it ourselves. I could give more if I had more. I could do more if I had more. If you won't do with little, you won't do with much. I've heard that story too many times. And so when something comes against a believer, we have the ability and expectation to deal with it. But the same thing that comes against a believer is the same thing that comes against an unbeliever. The difference being is they don't have the ability or the expectation to stand. If you and I were going to the bank together, we walk into the bank and we're standing next to a cop in his uniform, got his gun, got his taser, and somebody comes in to rob the bank, where does everybody look of who's going to handle this situation? It's the cop. He's got everything he needs right there to take care of it. What if the cop goes and cowers in the corner and starts making excuses that why he can't? Would we all be shocked? We would be, wouldn't we? And that's the church. You see, the world should be able to look at us and how we respond in whatever is thrown against us and be like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make sense. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the method which you can. He's coming against all of us, believer, unbeliever alike. The difference is, is we have the armor. Just sometimes we don't put it on. We make excuses of why we don't, we can't, whatever. But sometimes we just don't. And it's because we don't want to. And I'll get to why here in a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But you resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So your adversary, the devil, whose adversary is he? It's all of mankind. And if you want to be politically correct, womankind as well. So he is against everybody. And he's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He gets people isolated, gets them off the side, but he's coming against believer and unbeliever alike. Now here's the part written to the believer. You resist him. How do you do that? You stay steadfast in the faith. You realize that in that moment, Peter did not explain what that means. But there was an expectation that the believers that he is writing to would know what that is. Is that fair enough? He doesn't tell them what it means to be steadfast in the faith. It's implied. We should know. You see, the world around us is seeking spiritual answers. They're just seeking them in the wrong places. They will take anything that seems spiritual. I showed you guys that bracelet that's been going around. I told you guys a story about the crystals and the stuff like that and the stories that I've heard. There's much, much more, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But last week, you got to hear from Jim a little bit about his testimony. 
The spiritual world is alive and well and real. And it affects believers and unbelievers alike. They were attacking Jim when he was an unbeliever. The moment Jim became a believer, what did he suddenly have? The authority and ability to stand against it. Even if he didn't know how to do it yet. Something changed immediately. But he had to grow in that process. Why is that? See, this is what we have to understand. As a believer, you're a new creation. As a believer, everything you need to be a disciple has been given to you. It is your responsibility to use it. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is Jesus getting ready to ascend. Well, he said, let's leave this up here. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What else is left? That'd be nothing, okay? So all authority has been given to him. So because of that, he says, you go and you make disciples of all the nations. Who is he talking to? His disciples. Those who had lived with him day and night for the last three years. They had watched him from the moment of his baptism to the moment of his death to the moment that he had come back and now to the moment of his ascension. They'd been with him all the way. You've seen how I do it. All authority has been given to me. Now he's passing the baton on to them. So you go and make disciples of all nations. And what do you do? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Where do we find that information? In the Scriptures. You see, they wrote down all the things that He commanded. So, if you want to know what would Jesus do, you should read the Scriptures. You should not go and cherry-pick them. You should read their entirety. Because it's not just the New Testament and the words that Jesus said. You see, Jesus believed the entirety of the Old Testament. That's why He quoted it so much. That is the foundation upon the words that Jesus spoke. So if you want to understand them in their entirety, you'll go back to the old and begin to understand that part. This is where you become a student of Scripture. But when it comes down, it's like, okay, well, if I am to be doing this and I'm teaching them to observe what Jesus commanded, then we should also teach them to observe what Jesus did. And we should begin to reflect those very things that He said, that He taught, and that He did in our everyday lives. Fair enough. Would anybody disagree with that statement? So that means that when there's a debate, if something is acceptable or unacceptable, you should always lean towards the side of caution and be like, I'm not sure, so therefore I won't partake because I don't need this in my life. There are certain things you need in your life. They're called oxygen. You need that. Breathing is never up for debate. But there's a big debate on diet. What should you eat? How should you eat it? All of that. It's like, fine. If it's a real big deal, just avoid certain foods. That's fine. There are just things like that that we begin to look differently. And as I read you last week, let's read this again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Therefore I also, after I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So who's speaking here? This is Paul. And who is he speaking to? The church in Ephesus. 
And the one thing you need to know about the church of Ephesus, or the place of Ephesus, it is extremely pagan. This church will later be pastored by Timothy. It'll be the largest church, at least at that time, of over 50,000 people, is from what they can tell. It becomes a big deal in one of the most pagan territories. More gods, idols, uh, child sacrifice, all that stuff goes on here. So Paul, writing these, well, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe. So he is now, he's like, you are now set apart. He's excited. Because this was not a place where it was friendly to the gospel. There really wasn't a lot of places that were friendly to the gospel. But they've made headway. And so he is excited. And he says, so verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. Stop. It's everything he said before that is according to the working of God's mighty power and then he drills down more which he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and what did he do he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places now we'll stop for a moment because to you and i that is just wordplay that's cute seated at the right hand seat at the left hand i mean if you're in heaven do you really care where you're seated no just happy to got invited right But there's a point being made here, and especially in this moment, because as you guys well know, but if you were just a cursory student of the Bible, you just read it here or there, you may not pick up on the nuance. That right hand is the place of authority. All authority, as he said in Matthew, has been given to me. This here, Christ was seated after he raised from the dead at the right hand in the heavenly places. And what above? Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but is in that which is to come. So where is he? He's up here. Where is everything else? They're down here. All authority has been given to him. All authority has been bestowed upon him. And there is nothing that is named that is above that authority. Is there anything that exists without a name? No. Or we wouldn't know it. Right? Well, look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have the head and the body. Are they separated? No. You see, that authority comes from the head. It trickles down. That means the body, which is the church, which is what he just said, right? I'm not making that up. I'm not just giving you wordplay. He just said that, has the authority that Jesus Now, let's go back to the bank analogy. What is the expectation? Time to step up. That's the expectation. We don't. We must. You see, you wonder why the world is the way it is around you? Maybe it's because of the way we are around the world. I had somebody tell me not too long ago that they were considering a move because they didn't feel like they were effective as a minister in the area that they were at. These aren't pastors or preachers or anything like that. But, you know, our, our life is to make disciples. And they feel like they just haven't been able to do that. And it's kind of the whole casting pearls before swine. 
And here's the problem. Is sometimes the swine is the one giving the message. Because when they said this to me, these are people I care about, you know, known for a long time. I said, do you ever think that there might be a common denominator in the problem? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you talk a good game with me, but we both know you cuss like a sailor. You're constantly drinking. You ever think that maybe the words you're telling me and the actions you're showing them aren't lining up? They never thought about that before. I said, perhaps your message is getting lost in translation. Perhaps you're looking at the wrong place for the swan. Because what do we do? We blame somebody else. We blame something else. We blame anything else. It can't blame us. Can't be us. Can't be our fault. Got to be something else. Look at Luke chapter 9. Verse 1, now prior to this, as I told you guys last week, Jesus had just calmed the storm. He cast demons into pigs, healed the woman with the issue of blood, and raised Jairus' uh, daughter from the dead. So he's having a good day. Verse 1, he called his 12 disciples. So how many are there? 12. This is early. There's only 12. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So those two things seem to be interconnected, right? How many demons? All of them. Was there any demon that he didn't give them authority over? Nope. All authority had been given to him, and he gave it to them to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Again, it seems like those two things might be intertwined. I don't know. We'll see. He said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. How long is he sending them on this journey? Doesn't say. How far is he sending them on this journey? Doesn't say. What does he say? Don't worry about the necessities of life. Be taken care of. You just go. You be obedient. Let God work out the details. Whatever house you enter and stay there, uh, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And you have to understand this from a Jewish perspective, that when they left a pagan city, they would not bring the dust into Jerusalem, the holy city. They would shake off that dust. You treat them as they are unholy. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by them, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such thing? So he sought to him. So what's happening? Something supernatural is going on. They're looking for an ah, explanation of it, and therefore they're going, it's like, well, maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's one of the old prophets. Maybe it's something can't be John. I cut his head off. So unless it's, uh, what is that, Ichabod crane thing going on or whatever, it doesn't make any sense. Verse 10, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him of all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into the deserted place belonging to the city called uh, Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So they come back. He sent them out, the twelve. And they come back. And they're telling him, they're talking about this. And Jesus is speaking to them. And in Bethsaida, as we know what happens in Bethsaida, he feeds 5,000. We also see where he casts the demon out of the child. And Jim talked about that last week. You know, there are things that are going on, supernatural things that are getting the attention of the world. Why did people come to Jesus with their problems? Because there was an expectation that he could do something about it. Why? Did people go to the disciples of Jesus with their problems in this moment? Because there was an expectation they should be able to do something about this. 
And what does he say? Oh, ye of little faith, how long will I stand with you? And he cast the demon out of the child. You see, there was an expectation there because of their connection to Jesus. So let's fast forward to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So he sent 12, 12 come back. How many he sending out now? 70. He's sending out more, right? It's like an MLM thing going on, like a pyramid. Like, okay, you each get a friend, and then you get, each get two friends, and you just build this baby. Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, or sandals, and greet no one along the road. Now, what's he telling them here? I'm sending you out into a place. And there are wolves out there that are looking to devour you, but you don't need to worry about anything. What are they saying? How far is he sending them out? We don't know. How long is he sending them out? We don't know. He's just sending them. What is their job? Be obedient. Whatever house, verse 5, you enter first, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into his streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So he sends the 70 and they go out, and we know what happens when they come back, what takes place. They're excited. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what's he saying? That's great, but you need to be grateful. Your name's written in heaven. So he's saying, don't get excited about the authority that you have, because the authority is strictly a result of the positioning that you have with God. So here's the thing. Has that changed yet? Has the authority and how one gets it changed in any way? Not a bit. Of those 70, how many of them decided not to go? Well, we can tell none. Did he invite 100? I don't know. But what if those 70 decided, yeah, I don't know. You know, that's good for Peter and John and those guys. Those are the 12. They've done this before. But I'm not qualified for this. I can't. I can't handle it. You see, the positioning we have with Jesus is the same positioning they had with Jesus. And thus, as you look at it, the authority that they had is the same authority that we have. He is the head, we are the body. So if that is true, why doesn't the church walk in the authority that has been given to it? I have a one-word answer for this. I'm going to write it down. As I was praying a couple of weeks ago, about some different stuff. The Lord showed me something here. We have an undisciplined church. Would it be undisciplined of that cop in the moment that I described to cower in the corner? Or to be expected? You see, a disciplined officer will be training at every moment. They constantly go to the range, they run drills, they do things like that. So that they're prepared in the moment that they need to use those skills. Well, that's not what we have in the church today. 
You see, we have an undisciplined church because what things would we consider discipline? Well, there's a lot of things. You know, Jesus said, when you pray, which implies what? That you're going to pray. And he says, and when you fast, which implies what? We're going to fast. Well, when do we fast? Well, when we set up the annual, you know, first of the year fast. We've even created stuff to make it simpler for us Americans. We called it the Daniel fast. Do you realize the Daniel fast is not a fast? It was a fad. Because that's not fasting. That's dieting. Not even good dieting. Because some diets, like keto, you can eat all the bacon you want. Can't do that on the Daniel fast. So, he says when you pray, when you fast, what else does he say? When you give. See, these are disciplines. I'm working poor Ethan's arms out over here. I'll try to stand back, bud. When you give, does it take discipline to give? Absolutely. Does it take discipline to pray? Sure. Does it take discipline to read your Bible? Yep. Does it take more discipline to actually study it? You bet you it does. Does it take discipline to give? You bet. Does it take discipline to go to church? You bet. You see, we can find a million reasons of why we shouldn't do this or can't do it. Man, I just need a day off. I just need a day off. It's been a busy week. I just need a day off to stay at home. If Jesus was standing here, would you take that day off? Probably not. If Jesus was here taking attendance, be like, well, you know, don't want to miss out. If Jesus was the one telling you to give, would you give? Probably. If Jesus was the one that's telling you you need to pray, would you pray? Absolutely. If Jesus appears to your bed tonight, and you wake up, and he's standing at your foot foot of your bed, and he said, listen, I need you to fast tomorrow. Would you do it? You bet. And guess what, folks? He did. It's all found in Scripture. There's a million reasons we can come up to not do something, to be disciplined in the faith. And in this moment, when he gives the authority to these people, did it take discipline to go? Yeah. Did it take discipline to not take anything with you? Can you imagine? You're going on a trip, and you don't pack nothing? Absolutely not. Hey, leave your wallet at home. Leave your purse at home. And just trust the Lord. What would we all do? We'd put a credit card somewhere. What if I need gas money? I'm going to pass by three McDonald's and not stop at one of them? I don't think so. It took discipline for them to go. It took discipline for them to walk into the house. It took discipline for them to heal the sick. It took discipline for them to cast out the demons. It also took discipline for them to wipe the dust from their feet. You notice he didn't say beg them, try to convince them, show them the truth. Stand there and argue with them day in and day out. Try to get them to come on board. He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, listen, when you get there, have them bow their head and close their eyes. It'll be easier. Then they won't be embarrassed. He didn't say any of that. You see, we have an undisciplined church. There's a million reasons that we can give or why we shouldn't do things or why we can't do things or whatever the case may be. But we only need one reason to do all of the things. And that's because Jesus said so. See, that's being spiritually minded. That means when the world is in chaos, when the economy crashes, it's bound to happen. It's been a while since we've had a good economic crash. We're about due for one, I would assume. That's where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to worry. God provides for me. He takes care of me. Yeah, maybe I won't trade cars this year. Maybe I won't buy a boat like I wanted to. I'll be fine. If you look like me, you probably go a few days without a meal. If it really gets that bad, be all right. But I want to show you something. This is what the Lord showed me. When we write out the word undisciplined, we often think about different things of being undisciplined, usually our children or something along those lines. 
But there's a root to this word that we often miss. It's disciple. And that's what the Lord showed me. That was interesting to me. Because to be a disciple means you are to be disciplined. Obedient to the things of which he has said. Obedient to the things which he told you to do. Obedient to represent him as he has said. It's kind of like in the Ten Commandments says, don't take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain. In other words, don't, don't take on my name and then live how you want. When he says that, you are my disciples if you obey my commandments, implies that in order to be that disciple. Not born again, that's not what it says. Being born again and a disciple of Christ are not the same thing. He said, if you're my disciples, then you'll do what I said. And here's the problem. The reason we have an undisciplined church, primarily in America, but different parts of the world, is because we have a church full of people who have refused to be a disciple of Jesus. Do you want to know why we don't walk in the authority that was given to us? We won't discipline ourselves enough to do it. That's why when we hear about somebody who's sick, Jesus says in Mark 16, in fact, let's read this. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and weeped and wept. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared to another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven and they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Why did they not believe? Because they didn't believe what Jesus said. Dead people don't come back from the grave, even though we've seen it. Even though Jesus said it, we didn't believe him. Why did he rebuke them? Because they needed rebuking. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents and they drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So why don't we lay hands on the sick when we hear about somebody who's sick? Because we don't believe this. Because we're undisciplined. That's what he said to do. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why don't we do that? Because we don't believe it. That's for somebody else. We're not disciplined. If he showed up and we were one of the 70 who would bow out, we would. Like, oh, sorry, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. I don't have the gifting. I don't have the calling. I don't have the anointing. I don't have anything else. Except what we do have, the command. We have that. What else do we need? Nothing. Did he lay hands on the 70 before they went out? No. You have a big altar call and come out, y'all are blessed of the Lord, and blah, 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 blah. No, he didn't do anything. He said, hey, yo, I got authority. Now you do. Go. Here's what you do. It's really that simple. There's no special anointing. It's recognizing the authority you have. I promise you that if the example I gave of the bank happens, it'll be all over the news, and that cop will be working at Casey's next week because he is of no use whatsoever to the police force. It's the same thing with Navy SEALs. They train them and they run them through the rigor because in the moment that they are needed, they have to be able to perform. And if they are too weak-minded to go through the training that they went through, and listen, I would be one of those weak-minded folks. I wouldn't last very long. I'm not pretending I would. But thank God there are people who do, right? And if they can't make it through this, then they'll never survive. They make the training harder than the actual act because then it will seem easy. You see, we have an undisciplined church. And the reason we have an undisciplined church is because we think carnally. We're more concerned about our comfort and our feelings than the reality of what Jesus has said. 
We have a church full of people who believe in God and have maybe given their lives to Christ in the sense that they're born again, but they have not given their lives to Christ in the sense that I am now a living sacrifice to be holy and pleasing and acceptable to God. And as Jim talked about last week, it wasn't like he woke up one day and says, man, I got all this authority stuff. He began to grow in that knowledge. And thank God. The story you guys heard, heard about uh, the dude in El Salvador brought in by, on, in a wheelbarrow, right? And immediately, because he had discernment, he knew what was going on. He did not quit until the task was done. And now that man is transforming El Salvador on his own, building churches and all of this stuff. All because years ago, Jim had an encounter with Jesus. And if Jim had been like the typical Christian, he'd have been like, okay, I'm saved now. And that would have been the end of it. He'd occasionally shared the gospel. But that's not Jim. Jim, what special anointing do you have? His wife. It's the pupusas is what it is. Certainly she pushes him to greater things, but that's just it. That authority has been given. He recognizes it and walks in it. That's the difference. I know Paul would argue with this, but we could use a church full of Jim Clodfelters. That was for Paul's benefit. Just make sure he's awake. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Now this, just for you math whizzes, comes right after Ephesians chapter 1. Where we learn that Jesus is the head, seated at the right hand of God, and we are his body. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, and you he made alive. Who did it? He did. Who is you? Us. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, how thankful do you think Lazarus was? He was dead. Now he's not. How grateful do you think he was? In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now stop. Who is he talking to? Believers. And what were they? Dead in trespass and sin. Jesus made them alive. Once they walked according to the course of this world, which is implying there is a different course that they now should be walking in. It was according to whom? The prince of the power of the air, who as we've read before, we are above. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, he's making a differentiation between them now and then then, among whom also he once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling what? The desires of our flesh and of our mind, all of which what? He said you are to crucify your flesh and renew your mind. Right? Who does it? We do it. Did Jesus do that for us? No. What he did is give you the power and the ability and the expectation to do it. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Now stop. Where are we seated? Together with Jesus. Which is where? The right hand of the Father with what? All authority over every name that has been named. That in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. How did you get it? It was a gift. What did you do to earn it? Not a darn thing, which is wonderful, because what can you do to lose it? The same thing, nothing. You can't lose it. They're not car keys. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. In what way? We have now been created into the image of Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created by Christ, in Christ, for good works, not by good works. Fair enough? So the things that we do, the disciplines that we take, what are good works? Don't think about feeding the poor and being nice to your neighbor and all of that. Those are great, but those are an outflow of being obedient. God will bless obedience even if you miss it because the heart is what he wants. In one trying to do good, I give ministers a lot of grace. And I've told you guys some stories and I get phone calls and, and emails left and right of different things that are going on. If your heart's in the right place, even if your actions are wrong, you'll get a lot of grace from me if you're trying to do good. I even did this with my employees years and years ago that if you screwed up, but you were trying to do well, you're not getting fired. If you screwed up because you're being an idiot, you might. So, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And those works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are those works? It is the disciplines of the Christian faith. You will give because you're obedient to Him. You will love your neighbor because you're obedient to him. You will share the gospel because you're obedient to him. You will lay hands on the sick because you're obedient to him. And all of those works, and not even more, uh, just what I said, were put in place by God before the foundation of the wor world because of Christ. We weren't saved by them. We are saved to them. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, so he's making a distinction again who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, at, that at that time, Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How did we get there? By Jesus. How are we to live? Like Jesus. You see, we are to be his disciples. That is a conscious decision that is made. You can have Jesus as Savior and never make him your Lord. There are people today that got into heaven that that's all they got in. And you may be thinking, man, that's good enough. And to a degree, you'd be right. Yes, thank God. But what about all the people whose lives you didn't impact because you weren't disciplined? Disciplined to be out there spreading the gospel, but also disciplined enough to live your life holy and pleasing to God, that when they see that, you don't look like the Gentiles that you once were. You don't talk like the Gentile that you once were. There's a difference. He's constantly making a distinction. You see, this authority belongs to the disciples of Christ. The reason the church is weak and pathetic today is because we are undisciplined. That goes for all of us. 
Every one of us has an area in our life that maybe we haven't really given to the Lord. And we'll make a million excuses. Oh, it's just the way I talk, or it's just the way I think. Or, you know, God doesn't really mind. You know, we don't dig in. I'll just use one example, the debate about alcohol. When you ask somebody, is it okay for a believer to drink alcohol? You know what they say? It says, don't get drunk with wine. I'm not getting drunk. But is that all it says? Have we studied? Or did we take something that we want to be true and we find a way to interpret a verse to make it acceptable without digging any deeper? See, that's what we do. It's the same thing that teenagers do. How far is too far with my girlfriend? You just screwed up by asking that question. Because your heart's not right. It's how close to the cliff can I get without falling off? We need to get disciplined, church. What I'm asking for you guys to do is begin to pray. Not today, but this week. Because we've all got shortcomings. We've got things in our lives that we need to change. And you have the opportunity and control of that. Because I don't want to be a church that when that enemy's out roaring, looking for whom he can devour, he finds somebody here. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person, and I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be with those types of people. I want to be with people who just says, Lord, I love you with all that I have, and I will serve you with all that I have, and I will stop making excuses for all the dumb things that I do. It's time to start looking inward. And so when Jesus said, when you pray, and when you fast, and all of that, this would be a good week to do that. Spend some time praying. Spend some time fasting, asking the Lord, where am I? missing it. I promise you he will show you. I promise you there's not a person in this room that doesn't have something. It's time. Because a true disciple of Christ isn't looking to get by. He's looking to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, we thank you that you bring correction. Lord, we thank you that in everything that we say and do it is, it is truly to bring glory to your life. That we are a room full of disciples. A body gathered together with one heart, one mind, one purpose, Lord, that is to just make your glory known. That when people see us, they see you. They see your goodness. They see your mercy. They see your compassion. They see your power. They see your life. Lord, may every word we speak and action we take bring glory to your name. Lord, may every day we treat as an opportunity given to us once again that while we have breath in our lungs, that we will continue to shout your name everywhere we go, to live our lives to the fullest for you. Not concerned with the cares of this world, but to be separated from it, that we may bring glory to you. Lord, I thank you that you are revealing to us all of those things that we're missing, that we'll be disciplined enough to begin to make changes in our lives, that we will crucify the flesh, that we will renew our mind, and we will study the scripture to see if all those things that we've said are true. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've not only given us the ability, but the expectation that we will rise to those expectations. And we will be the ones who will walk in the fullness of the authority and power that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a blessed week. We'll see you Wednesday.